Hey, hey, Miles. Miles, you know it would be an awesome name for an imaginary band? What? Havoc's dissertation. Uh, get it? Get it? Because it's also imaginary? Uh, man, why are you so hard on Havoc? I am not hard on Havoc. The multiverse is hard on Havoc. I just think it's funny. I guess. Okay, think about it. He's basically a nonstop punching bag for superhero logic. All this poor kid ever wanted was a career in academia with his magnetic girlfriend, and instead he's been shoehorned into life as the X-Men's saddest also ran. I mean, his defining trait is living in the shadow of the one dude who's been more consistently screwed over by continuity than he has. He's gotta have some kind of thing of his own. Not really. I think that's part of why he's so easy to make fun of, actually. Because writers are so uncertain about what makes Havoc tick that every time one tries to put him in the spotlight, it feels like they're either recycling Cyclops motifs or throwing random stuff at the plot to see what'll stick. That can't be universally true. Uh, What about that miniseries, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown? Seriously? You went straight for the series that's about uneasy friendship and rivalry with Wolverine while romancing a semi-doomed redhead? Okay, point. But what about Peter David's X-Factor? The organization whose leadership Havoc literally inherited from Cyclops? Right, okay. Uh, Mutant X. Falls into an alternate universe where he's married to Cyclops' ex-wife from 616 and reluctantly leading a super messed up version of the X-Men. Okay, fine. Uh, Rise and fall of the Shi'ar Empire. I mean, Havoc led the Starjammers. Yeah, like a decade after Cyclops did it in Mutant X. Jeez, is there any superhero stuff Havoc's done first? Well, I guess post-childhood retrograde amnesia. Uh, So what you're saying is that the only way for Havoc to get out of his awful life is to literally forget that it exists. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, What does Tabula Rasa Havoc get up to, anyway? Does he just go back to grad school? You know, you'd think, but no. The best he's really managed was a protracted telepathic affair with a nurse while he was technically comatose. Wait, that's the best-case scenario? What's the worst? Genotion Magistrate. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 99 of J. and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Man, that intro sounds different with a new podcast name. It's, you know, one fewer syllable. I guess that's true. Um, it's yeah. great, though, actually. I've been signing uh, Patreon thank you cards, and it takes half as long, because my first name now has half as many letters. It's great. <laughs> Yes, in case you missed it, the podcast is no longer called Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men. It's now called Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. We are the same people. I just changed my name, and subsequently we changed the name of the podcast. Yes, so other relevant stuff. The main URL we're using it has gone from rachelandmiles.com to explainthexmen.com. That's explainthexmen starting with an X, like usual. rachelandmiles.com still redirects for now, and it will for the foreseeable future. Your RSS feeds should stay the same, should redirect appropriately. If you are having problems with any of this, please let us know ASAP and we will do our best to resolve them. This is the first time we've tried to move something on the scale, so it's possible that there will be a few kinks. Hopefully what you're all going to be doing is responding to this and being like, no, no, it's going perfectly, but, you know, just in case. Exactly. Okay, so uh, all of that said, let's talk about some X-Men. It's been a while. We have been with Captain Britain for a long time, then we had, what, the annuals before that? Yeah. So, um, okay, let's wait, wait, I get to do this. Previously on X-Men. Australia, Reavers, Inferno Watch, Madeline Pryor consorting with demons. So more specifically, the X-Men are indeed based out of Australia these days. That's been the case since Fall of the Mutants, after which the world thought they were dead. And so they've been going around, heroing, teleporting around, thanks to their buddy Gateway in Australia. And then whenever they do their hero stuff, they sort of leave this star X symbol that's currently their logo that Madeline designed. 
and wiping the memories of any witnesses so they don't specifically remember that it was the X-Men who helped them out. They're also completely invisible to electronic surveillance, which is going to become really, really important in this arc. Yeah, that was part of how they got arrested. So who's on the X-Men right now? So we've got Storm, who's the boss. Also Wolverine, Rogue, Colossus, Dazzler, Longshot, Havoc, Psylocke, and Madeline Pryor, who is not officially a member of the team, but who's been running around with them for a very long time and is basically running the tech end of the operation. This is, by the way, probably my favorite lineup of the X-Men. I just love this combination of characters. Now, Madeline Pryor, she hasn't just been doing computer stuff. She has also been having weird dreams about the demon Sim from New Mutants, from Limbo. Now infected with Warlock's techno-organic virus. Who has been encouraging her entirely in her dream, he promises, to take on this darker persona in order to get revenge on the world for what it's done to her as far as her losing her husband and her son. Spoiler, it's not just going to be in the dreams. She's also finally now aware of the resurrection and return of Jean Grey. So she's really not in some good headspace, either psychologically or, as it turns out, mystically. And narratively, we are in the final build to the next big crossover event, Inferno. Yes. So that's where we're starting. Now, this arc is the first appearance of a location that's going to end up being a big deal in X-Men and that most fans have already heard of. Genosha, the worst tourist destination in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, I mean, if you're totally a baseline human and you go there when the X-Men aren't fighting back, then that's fine, but then your pleasure is based on privilege and the slavery of others, so you probably shouldn't do that. I feel like Genosha gets taken over enough and is in a state of general massive civic unrest enough that it's still not a great place to spend your summer vacation. But yeah, Genosha, now it's been used in a number of different ways over the years. Come for the beaches, stay for the heavy-handed apartheid metaphors. In this early era, Genosha is sort of a human paradise built on the slave labor of mutant kind. Later on, we'll see it run as a mutant utopia by Magneto. Well, varying degrees of utopia. It's a mutant homeland. Whether or not it counts as a utopia at that point is really arguable, because it first becomes one when Magneto is still very much a supervillain. Yeah, and later on, it's in better shape under him. At one point after it gets destroyed, Professor Xavier comes back from the dead and helps out with it. There's a ton going on here, but right now, this is the most traditional version of Genosha we've seen. So, for instance, the animated series episode from the 90s is basically this version. Okay, so anyway, this is a four-issue arc. Now, this was happening when Uncanny X-Men was twice monthly. They would have two issues every month, kind of like a lot of comics do these days. And I guess because of the accelerated schedule, we have two different artists. We have Rick Leonardi and Mark Silvestri alternating. If you've been following recent Uncanny X-Men, not the current series, but the previous one, this actually reminds me a lot of what that series has been doing. So you've got two artists who don't really do identical interchangeable work, but who are working enough in the same style that there's not really a sense of stylistic whiplash when you go between them alternating. In this case, Mark Silvestri and Rick Leonardi. So with all of that background out of the way, let's talk about X-Men number 235 through 238. So I want to talk about how this issue starts because it's a great setup for one of the definitive aspects of this story arc. We've got a big sign, you know, very kind of almost 50s sign painting lettered. Welcome to Genosha, a green and pleasant land of hope and opportunity where the watchword is freedom. And against the sign is a man who is fleeing desperately holding a baby. I also really like the opening narration here because it just sets up another important aspect of this arc. This is the present. This is the world. And when it comes down to it, this is one of the X-Men stories of this era that does feel most like it could take place in our world. I mean, obviously, mutants aren't real uh, that we know of, but it's just so parallel to the way political systems tend to work. It's also, and very significantly, a story about mutant depression that isn't immediately set up as a metaphor. I mean, Genosha gets used later very explicitly as a parallel, an allegory for apartheid-era South Africa. That's not really the case yet. And 
because it's not the case yet, this is maybe one of the first stories that is explicitly and specifically about mutant oppression set up realistically in a world where there are mutants. Exactly. Where they're not a stand-in for someone else. Like, this is sort of written as a how this might play out. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves here because we're definitely going to talk more about that as we go. So let's talk about this poor dude who is fleeing. This dude is a father. He is fleeing with his baby, trying to stow it onto an airplane by itself and then getting himself killed to buy time and to cover its escape, to get it out of the place where he is. I think it's worth noting, too, that we don't, I mean, we know it's Genosha because of the title page, but the way the scene plays out and the way the conflict plays out and the way the people attacking him attack and go after him for being a mutant, like, this could be happening reasonably in the contemporary America of this comic. Yeah, absolutely. As it's portrayed in the Marvel Universe. And it's such a cliche setup that, you know, parents sacrificing their life to get the baby out. It's the Superman story. But it never really stops working for me. I think part of it for me is just this one little thing. As this father is fleeing from, you know, guns and trucks and stuff, his baby looks over his shoulder at the approaching helicopters and is like, look, dad, wappa wappas. And something about him just having no idea of the danger and the context that those wuppa wuppas, those helicopters, represent just makes it that much more tragic. Now, the father gets killed, the baby gets stowed away effectively in the plane, and we cut immediately to another plane, um, one full of a group called the Press Gang. The Press Gang are a group of Genosian mutants who work for the Genosian government. They are trying to track down someone named Jennifer Ransom. She was apparently uh, found to be a mutant in Genosha. But she fled the country. Now, we'll later find out that she didn't know about any of this. She just thought she was leaving Genosha to go help people. She's a doctor. Yeah, she is an immigrant. I think she's a naturalized Australian citizen at this point. So she's heading to respond to a distress call. She'd been called in. And I guess the pilot she's worked with typically is out. Maybe they're sick or reading a bunch of annuals from 1989 about the high evolutionary. And Madeline Pryor, who still somehow has free time between running all of the X-Men's tech setup and making really complicated infernal bargains, is also volunteering basically as a reserve pilot for the unnamed but might as well be Doctors Without Borders organization. And so she's the one who's at this point flying Jenny Ransom around when the press gang attacks. So let's talk about who the press gang is. Now, you mentioned that they were mutants who are working for Genosha. Genosha, of course, being a very anti-mutant country. And they're kind of a group of supervillains. Their names are Hawkshaw, Punch-Out, and Pipeline which may be the most side-scrolling, beat-em-up, thug set of names I have ever read. They kind of are. Well, I mean, you know, not even side-scroller. Like, with Punch-Out, I kind of want this woman. She's like a tall, muscular black woman. Looks a little bit like Frenzy. Like, I almost want her to have green boxing gloves or at least a pink tracksuit and then fight Mike Tyson at the end. Aww. It'd be great. Hawkshaw, by the way, I found out is actually old slang for a detective, and he's like a mutant detector. That's so really good slang. Oh my god, why is that not still in use as slang? We can bring it back in all of our day-to-day interactions with detectives. I I have detective friends. <laughs> One, I have a detective friend. I did not know that. Yeah, that you should come to Norwescon. Is their name Hawkshaw? No. Should it be? Maybe. Well, there you go. So, of course, this is a trap. The distress signal that the press gang called in was just to get Jennifer Ransom to come to them so they could take her back to Genosha. And they teleport her and Madeline away, Pipeline does. Pipeline's mutant powers involve, you know, fully nude teleportation. (laughs) Yes. It doesn't have to be that way because later Pipeline will teleport, like, some soldiers in their clothes. And I actually looked into this. Apparently, if Pipeline is teleporting people to Genosha, he can't teleport their clothes. But if he's teleporting people from Genosha, he can. Maybe it has to do with the machinery So whenever he he teleports soldiers back, they're naked? You know, that's a really good point. I can only assume so. I mean, I, I I just don't think it was thought out that well. 
And we were actually talking about this and the mechanics of why naked teleportation is such a common thing. And I think that it's that way largely for narrative purposes, because the whole point of teleportation is that it's instantaneous and it doesn't leave evidence. But if you need people to know that someone was teleported away and there aren't witnesses, the easiest way to do that is to leave their clothing in a pile. I guess that makes some sense. Yeah, I, I always just kind of figured that Mark Silvestri really wanted to draw naked people in this arc. Maybe. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. I mean, the, the main nudity comes later. It's true. There's so much nudity in this there arc, There is a lot of nudity in this arc. This is a highly naked arc, at which point I feel like I should probably reach out to the Flophouse and say that if they want to have a gratuitous X-Men nudity discussion crossover, we'd absolutely be open to that, because obviously there's more than enough to go around. <laughs> yes. No, anyway, I do want to point out that in this fight, as Madeline and this woman Jennifer Ransom are captured, Maddie does fight back really hard, like enough so that in the conflict, a plane actually explodes. Because Madeline Pryor is incredibly badass. We've seen this before again and again. She is nobody's damsel in goddamn distress. Totally. I love Madeline Pryor. It's a shame everything is going to go horribly, horribly wrong. You know, here's the thing. I actually love the Madeline Pryor Inferno arc. I love it. I think it's brilliant. And I think the main issue is not that arc. It's the fact that every follow-up to it sucks. That's true, because throughout all of Inferno and the stuff leading up to it, Madeline does have agency. I mean, yes, she's in a situation she didn't create by any means, but she always makes her own decisions, good or bad. I'm going to get back to this in like three or four episodes, and I'm going to talk about it for about half an hour, but for now we should go on. Yes. Um, okay, so they're gone. The press gang has been successful. Uh, the reason they take Maddie, by the way, even though they didn't know who she was, was because she didn't show up on their sensors. They're wondering At what's all. up. She not only didn't scan as a mutant, she didn't scan. The sensors didn't register her as there, so they're like, oh, this is an Anomaly, we should investigate. So the X-Men quickly realize that, hey, their buddy's gone and come zooming in. Rogue flies in so fast that she breaks the sound barrier as near as I can tell. And then the rest of the X-Men teleport in using Gateway's powers. Now, as it turns out, Jenny was only half of the press gang's mission. They are also in Australia to pick up the baby who we saw smuggled away in the opening of this issue. So uh, Wolverine manages to reconstruct what happened, and he and the X-Men track the press gang to a nearby hospital. Rogue and Wolverine decide they're going to infiltrate. Rogue dresses up as a nurse, and Wolverine basically just covers himself with a blanket because he's ridiculous. I like that. I, th I think he figures, all right, everyone knows that like four seconds into us getting into this hospital, I'm just going to jump out and start cutting people's faces, so why bother with anything elaborate? Also, I left my spare eye patch in Madripoor. <laughs> yes, that as well, because I guess the Wolverine series would have started around now, right? Yeah, just about. And they're also just now discovering what's going on with the press gang. And so we keep on getting, you know, them discovering the, these additional layers to it. The whole thing just kind of plays to me like a game of yes and. Oh, the improv comedy yeah. game? So we're going to infiltrate the hospital. Yes, and I'm going to dress up as a nurse. Yes, and I'm going to wrap myself in a blanket with my claws out. Yes, and baby stealing. Right, because pretty soon they are confronted by the press gang. Rogue, of course, uses her powers on Punch-Out. She steals Punch-Out's mutant powers, and so she gets big and buff, and her nurse outfit rips, so take a slightly fetishy drink. Um, but pace yourself, because, again, this is a very naked story arc. And for some reason, Rogue's line when they realize what's going on with the press gang is sort of B-objective, I just find hilarious. Wolvie, they're stealing a baby! Miles has seriously been yelling this at random times all morning. Wolvie, they're stealing a baby! I'm just gonna, every, every time there's an infant involved in anything, I'm gonna say this from now on. I guess that's gonna be a lot of times in Inferno. This is gonna make baby showers really awkward for the rest of our lives. <laughs> By which you mean awesome. And so, yeah, they fight the press gang, but are quickly knocked out because Pipeline, the teleporter, has teleported in some soldiers who, who surprise... Who are fully dressed and carrying weapons because they're coming from Genosha. Who surprise Wolverine and Rogue and knock them unconscious. 
So that's a thing. Meanwhile, X-Men to the rescue, again. Well, X-Men to the attempted rescue, at least. You tried, X-Men. And you know, there's some fun fight stuff, there's some fun lines, like Psylocke telling Havoc, Come on, Havoc, time for some gratuitous heroics. If you're Havoc, all heroics are kind of gratuitous. I guess that's true. But like you said, Jay, the press gang does manage to escape. Now, they've already teleported Madeline and Jennifer Ransom away, and while they're at it, they also teleport Wolverine and Rogue away. So Genosis is just filling up with main characters at this point. But not, as previously established, their clothing, because Wolverine and Rogue arrive in Genosha completely naked. Take a drink, follow it with a beer back. Oh, I like that. I like that. Right. And so actually, I was thinking about this and how appropriate it is that it's these two characters, because I suspect, and I've not done this, I'm hoping that someone will hear this and decide that this would be an excellent use of their free time. I'm really curious about what you'd get if you crunched the numbers and looked at the relative odds that the naked person in any given naked person fight in X-Men was either Wolverine or Rogue as opposed to any other member of the team, because I feel like it's really concentrated with the two of them. Yeah, I think that would be a lot. And so this fight, as they're, you know, being badass and having people's arms or guns or whatever strategically over their naughty bits, they do really well, but not for long, because there's another member of the press gang, an old sort of portly mustache guy named Wipeout, who takes her mutant powers away. Which, for the two of them, is catastrophic in a fight. Remember, Rogue's powers are basically near invulnerability, super strength, flight, and of course, you know, power absorption. Wolverine's is his healing factor. At this point, it's worth noting, by the way, Wolverine's claws were not part of his official power set at this point. He's still able to use them when his mutant powers are gone. Yeah, and I think we've seen that before. When his healing factor stops functioning, his claws are still present. They were originally, I think, supposed to be just a mechanical addition to a skeleton that was added along with the rest of the adamantium, which now that his healing factor is gone, is rapidly killing him. So life sucks for them. But in the meantime, let's learn more about what's going on in Genosha, because so far we've really only seen like the militaristic mutant kidnapping part. Turns out there's a lot more. Well, our first glimpse of a slice of relatively normal life on Genosha is really, really normal. It's incredibly sitcomish. It's a teenager in bed, woken up by a ringing phone, trying to hit his alarm clock, grudgingly falling out of bed and finally answering the phone, um, which is a call for someone named the Genegineer. And that's his dad, who's a guy named David Moreau. Yes, there's a genetic manipulating scientist named Dr. Moreau. Spelled differently, Genegineer could also technically be Mr. Sinister's job title. It totally so could, to point yeah. that out. Genegineer. Yeah. Oh, God, that's terrible. Yeah. I love it. And so, yeah, this is really weird. I mean, clearly this is part of Genosha. Clearly there's genetic stuff going on in this country, but it just starts out like such a normal sitcom. And that's part of why this arc works so well. It's peaceful and suburban. And I want to stop and actually talk about this right now because we've seen glimpses of it previously even. You know, there's a bit with the Genosian soldiers in 235 where they're talking about the local response to them busting in and apparently kidnapping people and saying, you know, ain't hard to understand. How'd we feel if some outsider did the same to Genosha? The Genosians are portrayed as completely wrong and acting utterly immorally, but also as eminently reasonable. And that makes them such good and such interesting villains. This is something Chris Claremont has talked about a lot with regards to Magneto and other villains that he's developed and that I've been thinking about a lot because I just recently rewatched the documentary, Chris Claremont's X-Men, which, by the way, I highly recommend checking out. But One of the things he talked about is that, you know, villains are almost never villains in their own minds. And, you know, you see that built up. You see reveals that villains have internal reasoning for what they're doing, but you rarely see it played as eerily as it is in Genosha. And so seeing this completely normal suburban white picket fences kind of neighborhood where all of this evil stuff is based out of, it really uh, highlights that that disconnect. 
Well, it also plays in very stark contrast to, I think, the two best examples of anti-mutant and mutant depressive structuralists we've seen so far. Actually, you know, the three examples, Senator Kelly, who is in the U.S. government and is actively advocating to legislate against mutants. People like Stryker, who again is just frothingly anti-mutant. You know, the animator, who is, I think, probably the closest parallel to the gene engineer functionally we've seen so far. Only functionally, though. The animator wears a cat skull on his head and froths at the mouth literally. Right. And the gene engineer, he's really mild-mannered. He's a fairly chill dude. He is nice to his family. And also, finally, Cameron Hodge, who looks kind of like the gene engineer and will end up actually being his boss much later. But who, again, he's the guy who's organizing a massive system and movement largely around his hatred of mutants. And that's not the basis for Genosha's slavery system. It's at least nominally not about being explicitly anti-mutant. And I think that's really significant because it highlights one of the most insidious, pervasive and powerful avenues of oppression, which is, you know, rationalizing it as being in service to the greater good. Now, we pretty quickly find out what's going on with that system of mutant oppression, because when the gene engineer leaves on a waiting plane to go investigate this emergency call, it kind of messes up the lawn, and a dude in a brightly colored, skin-tight suit with a number on him, and no hair or defining marks comes up. Well, he has defining marks. He has a number tattooed across his face. Uh, well, yes, the same number as on his suit, comes up and starts fixing up the lawn. Essentially, what we're seeing is a group of mutants who are, have all been dehumanized and anonymized and used as servants, as slaves in this country. There is allegorical and cultural cutting. There's the fact that, for example, the teenager is calling this mutate slave boy. Yeah, absolutely. So... The next thing that this teenager sees, this teenager, by the way, he is named Philip Morrow. He's the son of the gene engineer. Can we call him gene engineer junior instead? Because that's a lot more fun to say. It is, but he ends up being an awesome character, so I kind of don't want to. Philip gene engineer junior. There Morrow. we go. <laughs> now, the next thing this kid sees is a strike team of, you know, planes and military vehicles and stuff like that. There are a lot of those in Genosha going after a nearby family, that being the Ransoms. Remember that woman, Jenny Ransom, who the press gang just kidnapped? This is her family, and these are like family friends of his, family friends of the Moreaus. So well, he, Jenny's his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, they're romantically involved, or at least they used to be. They grew up together. And so he's like, hey, uh, what's going on here? And Police business, son, move along now. There's a good lad. This is no concern of yours. And so when he protests, the magistrates are really harsh with him. Like, they start to kind of beat him up until one of them recognizes him and is like, dude, dude, this is the gene engineer's kid. Just pretend nothing happened. We'll make it worth your while. We're really sorry. We didn't know it was you. Philip runs home to try to find out what happened. He looks up Jenny on his father's computer and discovers that she's been processed. She is set up to be genetically altered to be a better worker for the country as a mutant, but she's not supposed to be a mutant. Philip thinks this is an anomaly. You know, they've both been tested and came out human. And as he's doing this, his dad comes home and sees him on the computer and explains what's up, which is that Mr. Ransom, Jenny's dad, when he found out she was a mutant, used the influence he had with the government to switch her results with that of another girl. This other girl was taken and attempted to be processed to put into one of these skin suits, you know, enslaved. Since she wasn't really a mutant, she got killed. That scene of charming family bonding is interrupted because the gene engineer has urgent business in Hammer Bay, which is basically the capital of Genosha, about two mutants who've just been brought in, Wolverine and Rogue. And there are a number of problems about them. The first is that they're still not visible to any of the sensors or electronic equipment, and in fact, that whatever is preventing them from showing up is also corrupting other data. 
The other problem is that Rogue has apparently been assaulted in some way by guards on the way in. And the response to this, I think, is, again, one of those small details that works very well to build up Genosha as looking reasonable because it's treated as a foregone conclusion in light of this that, no, those guards were then immediately disciplined. That was totally inappropriate. That this is a state where mutant slavery is acceptable, but there are still pointed ethical lines. Exactly. Now, Rogue is in real bad shape. She's basically in fetal position. And pretty soon we find out why. I mean, I think the initial implication is that she was raped. But as soon as it goes into her mindscape where she's retreated, we find that's not the case. All they did was touch her. Rude hands, ruder glances, taunting promises of worse to come. She couldn't stop them. For so long, she dreamed of being able to touch another person without her power absorbing his or her psyche. To hold, to caress, to kiss, just like any other normal teenage girl. Wait, Rogue's supposed to be a teenager still? Um, it kind of makes sense if you look at the way time's passed that she might be like 19 or 20 at this point. I guess so. In those dreams, it was the most beautiful of moments. She never imagined being handled against her will. Small wonder, then, her responses to withdraw as deeply into her mind as it's possible to go. To the lowest depths of her primal subconscious. And she ends up in this sort of cityscape that's inside her mind where basically everybody she's ever absorbed, everyone she's ever used her powers on and gained their psyche temporarily, is there. This actually reminds me of nothing more than... Legion? Yeah, Legion, exactly. Uh, Not the one we just talked about in Captain Britain, the one that's, you know, David Haller. Well, Legion specifically, as portrayed in the most recent series and the way he interacts with his other personae, the difference there is that those personalities are organic to Legion, and these are basically foreign presences in Rogue's mind, and not only foreign presences in Rogue's mind, but ones she has entrapped there functionally against their wills. And unsurprisingly, the most prominent and most powerful of those is the one that she permanently absorbed, Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel. Well, and you know, looking at this page, I said against their wills, but it actually includes everyone she's absorbed, because for example, North Star is there. Oh yeah, and that was pretty much voluntary, true. That was entirely voluntary, and it was entirely positive for both of them. And Carol specifically warns the rest of the presences in Rogue's head away from her. She steps in to protect Rogue. You phantoms want her? You'll have to deal with me first. Carol Danvers? But those others, they're like ghosts. You're as solid as me. They're residual memories, psychic leftovers. I'm real. I don't know if I can ever forgive you for what you did to me, but we're both of us stuck inside your head for the rest of your life. What hurts you hurts me, and I won't have that especially with Wolverine in danger as well. I can help, Rogue. This is my kind of caper, if you'll let me. You want to take over? I have to. And afterwards, what's to prevent you staying in charge? I'd be within my rights. You stole me, powers, memories, personality, permanently from my rightful body, as much as murdered me. Why shouldn't I take control of yours? I didn't mean to. It was an accident. I only meant to be temporary, like the others. But things got out of hand. You fought too hard. I was fighting for my life. There's no other way, Rogue. You'll have to trust me. And Rogue's eyes open up in the cell that she's in, in fetal position, but not looking traumatized, just looking, for lack of a better word, ready. Guards Rogue had attacked earlier come in to rough her up off camera, and Carol, who of course has significant combat abilities entirely independent of superpowers, is able to very easily take them out. What she and Rogue also have is this mutate skin suit that is so impressive. So all the mutates, all the mutants who have been kind of altered, they all have these skin-tight costumes that are very brightly colored with numbers on them. And most of them are just like a couple colors, like red and yellow or blue and orange or whatever. And Rogue's is blue, orange, yellow, and green with all these really elaborate designs. It is, 
I, I don't use the word tacky lightly given my own fashion sense, but it is tacky. Dudes. She looks like she comes out of one of the club scenes in Hackers. Oh, God, she really does. On the upside, that means there's a great soundtrack playing behind her. Right. And so, yeah, she busts Wolverine out after beating up all these guards. And he is in bad, bad shape. I mean, like you said, Jay, his healing factor is gone, which means the adamantium in him around his skeleton is poisoning him. Now, that's not explicit at this point. But from what we know later about the character, that's clearly what's going on. Fortunately, if there's anything we've learned from the Brood Saga, it's that Carol Danvers and Wolverine in combination are unfucking stoppable Yeah, I mean, they've worked together a number of times before. It's been alluded to that they work together as spies, as agents. Yeah, they're, old, the mi- they're old military buddies. They've teamed up a bunch and they work together seamlessly. They know each other's MOs. They speak a common language and they are both at their absolute best against impossible odds. Yeah, I also like that Wolverine immediately recognizes that Carol has taken over Rogue. Yeah. Okay, so they are now fugitives. They are now enemies of the state. And the chief magistrate, I don't think we ever get her name, but she's a hard ass and she's not necessarily a great person, but it's clear that she is very competent. She's very committed to her job and she very much comes across Again, just like the engineer doesn't come off as a supervillain, like he's wrong, he's doing really evil stuff, the chief magistrate comes across, again, as a, you know, career military leader and bureaucrat. Like she comes off as someone who's very competent, very dedicated, and in this case, very competent at and dedicated to the wrong thing. Yeah. So the chief magistrate and the engineer, David Moreau, are attempting to track down these fugitives, these two mysterious mutants who, despite not having any powers, are kicking all kinds of ass. The chief is actually worried that since they're clearly these skilled spies, like they hijack non-hijackable planes, stuff like that, maybe they are in fact spies from a foreign power. Genosha is concerned about its interactions with the rest of the world. Well, they're not just effective spies. They're invisible to electronic surveillance. And they've got a lot of characteristics that sort of imply that this might be some kind of foreign infiltration or attack. Wolverine and Carol manage to lay low in Genosha, and we get another glimpse of the actual country via an informatape. Informatape? Informatape. I guess propaganda video or perhaps newsreel or advertisement wasn't quite technically advanced enough for people who would come up with Gene Genier as an official title. Oh man, I bet they used the word edutainment with no irony. God damn it, Genosha. You thought it was the slavery and the segregation and the general horribleness that meant you had to go down? No, it's your stupid portmanteaus. Exactly. But I really do love this informatape, this newscast, essentially, because it just contrasts so beautifully with what we've seen. Ours is a free land where people are judged by deeds and character, not the color of their skin. Genosha is for lovers. Well, as long as they're human. But yeah, so they're trying to figure out what to do because there's no way they can get out of this country easily. Basically, Wolverine's just trying to look as normal and generic as possible, wearing really normal clothing, and Rogue slash Carol Danvers is totally doing the opposite. Dazzle camouflage. Yeah, she's dressing up. I mean, it's not technically dazzle camouflage. She's dressing up in this, like, super 80s sexy look. Like, oh man, those shoulder pads and that bare midriff, which is kind of great logic because she's like, well, this way no one will remember my face, which... Okay, you know, that's legit. Also, no one will ever remember her face because it's drawn by Mark Silvestri and so fairly generic. (laughs) Yeah, well, there is that. You'd think they'd... He does a lot of things very, very well, but distinctive faces are not among them. Yeah, you'd think people would recognize her skunk haircut, but I don't know, maybe that's really common in You know, it's the (laughs) mid-80s. Yeah. And I also, speaking of art, um, I think it's actually Leonardi drawing this You're right, it's Rick Leonardi at this point. Um, But yeah, I really like the way he draws Wolverine because Wolverine just looks old like it really gets across how much he relies on his healing factor and what bad shape he's in without it he looks like this broken old man i love it now the identities they've got the magistrate cards they've stolen to get out are being tracked by the government so they need to pick up new ones and they do this by heading to a bar where the magistrates are hanging out 
and basically provoking a bar fight during which they will be able to steal new IDs. Well, yeah, they don't have to try hard to provoke one because there's this kid who's at the bar who's basically starting shit. He's just yelling at everyone. And we recognize pretty quickly, this is Philip Moreau. This is the gene engineer's son, and he is in bad shape. He is not happy. He is specifically horribly, horribly upset because he's just realized that he's complicit in a violently oppressive system that stole his girlfriend and is now rewriting her genetic code. Yeah, well, he doesn't realize all of that yet, but he's starting to get an inkling. And so the magistrates, not knowing who he is, again, basically throw him out, beat him down, and say, you know what? There's a mute train leaving soon. Basically a train sending people to processing. No, they don't know who he is at first, but they do work out who he is by the end. We find out that the magistrates aren't that fond of the gene engineer. He's got a lot of power, but he's also built up a lot of resentment because he is the bureaucrat who's effectively at a higher rank than the military. And so they decide, you know, we're going to teach this fucking kid a lesson. We're just going to throw him on the mutant train. Which means he's going to get processed as a mutant, which, as we learned from what Jenny Ransom's parents did, will probably get him killed. But, yeah, you know. One of the things I like about Genosha is that it's this very textured country. You know, we do see these political conflicts even within it. It's not just humans versus mutants. There's a lot more than that going on. It makes it feel real. It makes it feel really real. I mean, I mentioned before what's going on in Genosha as being a much more insidious, in a lot of ways, much more realistic perspective on systemic oppression than we tend to see. Superhero comics by dint of their genre and by dint of the way they work, tend to exaggerate morality into a wildly, wildly split black and white binary where good guys are super good and bad guys are super bad. And villainy is always deliberate. Villainy is snidely whiplash, mustache twirling awfulness, and bigots are always really explicitly bigoted. Yeah, Captain Planet Syndrome. Captain Planet Syndrome, but also like, you know, the Striker Crusade, yeah, true. which is effective, but it's pretty over the top in a lot of ways. Genosha feels plausible in a way that those don't. And that's part of what makes it so scary and also such a good setting. I totally agree. Yeah. So Wolverine and Rogue figure, all right, this kid's going to be put on the mutant train. He's going to be taken to processing. That's probably where Madeline Pryor and Jenny Ransom have been taken as well. Let's tag along in an awesome heist scene. Because, well, it's Logan and Carol. You don't do a Logan and Carol story that doesn't have an awesome heist. That's a ridiculous waste. And so they just jump onto this moving train. And it actually doesn't work as well as you would think. Like, it's not this perfect high-action James Bond thing because, A, they don't have powers, and B, Wolverine is actively dying. Wolverine is not only dying of blood poisoning, but without a mutant healing factor, and it's significantly lower than usual strength, he's dragging around an extra hundred or so pounds of very heavy metal. Again, it's not addressed, but knowing that that's the case, it's like, oh, dude, your life sucks right now. Yeah, it really sucks to be Wolverine without a healing factor. And I love the dynamic between the two of them because Carol is in much better shape, and these are old partners, and there's no judgment or anything. So, like, Wolverine almost falls off a train at one point. Hold on, hold on. I have you. I'll pull you up. Should be able to do it myself. That's what partners are for, to compensate weaknesses as well as complement strengths. I can't hack it, Ace. Then I will, chum, for both of us. Love that she calls him chum. <laughs> I do, too. It's a good word. It should be back in the common lexicon. Can we start calling each other chum? It is, but only it's a fishing term. I think it's something you throw in water to attract fish. Eh, let's take it back for friendship. <laughs> there we go. But yeah, uh, I, I love Wolverine's recognition of his own limitations. And like, in a way, you know, letting Carol do stuff she's going to be better at because of circumstance or because of skill. It almost reminds me of that amazing scene from Mad Max Fury Road where Max lets Furiosa take the sniper shot that he can't take. Oh, man, you are 100% right. That is totally, totally a Logan and Carol moment. It really is, yeah. Oh, I like Fury Road even more now, which I wasn't sure was actually possible. If there's anyone listening to this podcast that hasn't seen Mad Max Fury Road, 
It's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Like, I mean that legitimately. I know I use a lot of hyperbole, but it is a wonderful, wonderful film. Also, if there's anyone listening to this podcast who publishes a paying venue that covers entertainment and wants to hear a really interesting pitch about an article about Nux and the subversion of culturally mandated masculine standards in Fury Road, call me. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but we digress. <laughs> that, movie, that movie is so amazing, though. You should absolutely watch it repeatedly also the editing is just oh it's a perfect movie it's so <laughs> so good yes so good but anyway x-men uh oh, so but fury road i mean this is a really good story but it's not as good a story like fury road is so good <laughs> it's so good so wolverine and carol danvers slash rogue do manage to sneak aboard the train but pretty quickly they're caught even though they're disguised as magistrates and all the mutates believe they are magistrates the real ones do in fact find them Carol and Logan are dressed as magistrates, so they use this as an excuse. They say, well, we saw that the engineer's kid was on the train. Accidentally, we hopped on to retrieve him because, you know, we figured whoever made this mistake would get in a huge amount of trouble and we wanted to, you know, have our buddies' backs. And the magistrates buy it, but as they're leaving, Wolverine swears in this sort of tiny, grumbly voice that he is going to bring this country down. This is like proto-old man Logan right here, I think. What I was thinking reading this is that this specific story is where Archer got his idea of what it means to be a secret agent. I think you may be right. Because we know he's a huge X-Men nerd. And like this is the you sneak into a country naked if possible and basically punch the country until you succeed at whatever nebulous mission you had. (laughs) So, yeah, they now with Philip Moreau in tow start sneaking away to continue their let's get the hell out of here and find Madeline Pryor mission. And man, I love it because, of course, Carol Danvers recognizes that they're basically in Star Wars A New Hope. Strap yourself in and we'll pull a Millennium Falcon out of this bargain basement Death Star. And then they steal a plane. This Uh is such a good comic. Okay, this arc is just so much fun. I mean, yes, there's this big metaphor. There's this big examination of ethics and government and morality. But it's also just a really fun story. You know, I gotta say, I've talked about how I don't really miss Logan in modern X-Men. And I can think of one thing I would bring him back for. To hang out with Carol Danvers? Yeah, if I could have a series of the two of them running around being secret agents together, (laughs) I would absolutely, absolutely be okay with reviving him just for that. Absolutely, yeah. You could do that with Old Man Logan, though, Uh, I think. I think so. Same Logan, same memories. Outside of all this heisty stuff, back in Hammer Bay, this beautiful technological city, Jennifer Ransom, who has been caught, is brought to the Jean-Genier in her red and yellow mutate skin suit. And we should say mutate, I don't think we ever specified this, mutate is what the Genotians call the mutants who've been processed and enslaved. Yeah, exactly. The ones with the numbers on them and their head shaved and the suits bonded to their skin. Jenny is aghast. She doesn't understand what's going on. She'd been unaware that her father apparently switched her test results. All Genosian citizens have to be tested for mutant potential. And Jenny's dad was high enough up that he could switch her results with those of a baseline human girl who was then killed during the processing. And she has known the engineer since she was a kid. She calls him Uncle David. It's sad, but he's completely firm about this. I know this isn't your fault, that you view what's happening as some horrible, unspeakable fate worse than death. But without gifted people such as yourself, how else do you think Genosha can maintain its standard of living? It isn't fair. Why me? It isn't fair, Jennifer, that this island is one of the most inhospitable rocks on the planet. However, through our God-given intelligence and talent and skill and, yes, sacrifice, we've made Genosha a paradise on Earth. He continues explaining. Ours is a nation of ten million, almost totally dependent for its welfare on the work of a few hundred superpowered mutants. Without them, we're nothing. Indeed, their power is sufficient to destroy us. That's why we have to impose such strict controls. Not slavery, child. Self-defense. And if you switch the population numbers, this is basically straight-up classic justifications for slavery. 
Yeah, totally. And what you were saying about this being the kind of bigotry, this sort of subtle, rationalizable bigotry that we never see in comics, I think you're absolutely right. And this is so beautiful because the Gene Engineer, he's not coming off as cruel. He's not coming off as malicious or even mean. He's coming off as a guy who truly believes that the needs of the many justify the sacrifices of a few. He's willing to turn a blind eye to the fact that these mutants are all people in favor of looking at the fact that the vast majority of the people in this country are living really easy, high-quality lives. Now, this is, of course, a bullshit argument, because what he's justifying, you know, this isn't the only way that nation could survive. It's the most expedient. And that's an important line to draw, and it's an important argument. Meanwhile, back in Australia, the X-Men are interrogating the press gang. Yeah, the press gang did not make it back to Genosha. They've been sort of on the run. Okay, my favorite part of this whole thing, once they do catch the press gang, is this super close-up on Hawkshaw's face. He's got like this awesome, you know, PI-looking mustache, and Psylocke has her pink psychic butterfly effect over him. So it just looks like he's got this incredible bright pink haircut, or like this really weird like tiara mask thing on top of his manly manly mustache, and I love it. That would be awesome, man. How much awesomer would Psylocke be if she stayed like amazing perfect femme princess, but also had a really good handlebar mustache? I mean, I think you could say that about pretty much any superhero or supervillain. Mustache is only going to improve their face. Mustaches for all. Mustaches for all. There's yes. never been a mustache era. Like there have been, you know, facial buttress eras and pouch eras, but never really a mustache era. All right. So I'm going to call it, let's say starting in 2018, mustaches on like all of the X-Men. And once again, Marvel carefully double checks to make sure they've absolutely lost our contact information. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, Psylocke does, you know, force her way into his mind. I do like that she's never had any of the same compunctions that Xavier claims to about invading people's minds. Like, if they're a bad guy, she'll just do it. And there's a really cool visual representation of this as that pink butterfly eye effect that her telepathy is often represented as goes through these like labyrinthine caves in Hawkshaw's mind. Yeah, we see that as her avatar in psychic communication a lot, just sort of showing up. And yeah, it's neat having a recognizable signature because visually portraying telepathy is kind of an ongoing challenge and having there be more character specific touches to it is something that I always very much like. Yeah, totally. As opposed to just like the pink bubblegum splatter coming out of Xavier's head in the 90s. (laughs) Uh, So yeah. Dark City telepath fights. Oh man, I'll stand up for that scene. So Betsy finds out what's up, both in terms of where Madeline's been taken but also in terms of what's really going on underneath Genosian society, and she is super, super angry about this. So, the X-Men teleport to Genosha. And in doing so, they miss a call, or rather specifically Madeline misses a call, that comes into the video monitor in her little sort of underground computer lab. And this call is from a sort of horse-face-looking demon thing? Hello? Hello? I am nastier. Sim told me to get in touch with you regarding some special merchandise you're interested in. But since you're not about, I'll ring back later. Have a nice day. So formal and so terrifying. Now, the readers who were reading all the X-Books at the time would actually have seen Nastier briefly before hanging out with Cameron Hodge in an issue of X-Factor. We'll get to that in a couple of episodes yeah, ourselves. That's, what, three weeks from now, I think. But for now, he is just going to politely leave a message and try to track down, you know, Maddie where she actually is, because while she didn't leave a forwarding address, he is in fact a demon and they can get around things like that. Maddie is in fact in Genosha. She is about to be bonded to a skin suit. She is being psychically interrogated or they're trying to psychically interrogate her. And Nestor just shows up on a nearby monitor. Oh, forgive me. Have I called it an inconvenient time? And she just says very softly, later. And what I love about this right here is that she is in a super, like, perilous situation. You know, she's about to be bonded into this skin suit forever and, like, enslaved and she'll never see freedom again. 
And this just doesn't seem important to her. Yeah, she gives no fucks. She's playing the long game here. Yeah, because she realizes that what's happening with Nasty or all this demon stuff, that's what really matters. And that's going to render all of this stuff irrelevant. And I love seeing Madeline Pryor, this character we know and love, with this darkness building inside her without changing who she is. We find out a few minutes later why she's so unconcerned as Psylocke is hit with an enormous psychic backlash from something that's happened in Hammer Bay. And we see the room where Madeline was being interrogated and examined, and the lights are out, and all of the Genosians who were there are violently dead. Yeah, they're like hanging from the ceilings, and there's blood spattered everywhere. It's super gross and terrifying. So the Genesianer is trying to pick apart what happens, and he examines her psychic transcript. This is, I believe, specifically a video transcript of her psychic interrogation. I'm really unclear on how this actually works mechanically or in time, and whether the engineer she's interacting with in the video is the actual one or which is one in her imagination. It's just one in her imagination. Apparently, she was able, according to the people who are showing the engineer the video, to determine that he was, in fact, the one behind this, even though she hadn't met him before. Now, what we see initially, what's identified as Madeline's self-image, is a little girl in a yellow dress picking flowers and singing blithely. The song she's singing, they've identified as Gone to America by Steel Eye Span, which is a song about having a man and losing him. In the song, he's accused of poaching and stealing wine and transported to America. And it's got some kind of interesting dual implications in terms of its relevance to Madeline. Right, because of course she has lost her husband. She feels that he's been unfairly taken from her by Jean Grey. But the other half of the song, you know, what's roughly implied in the lyrics is that the guy's innocent. The time when he was excused of doing this was actually when he was sleeping with the woman who's the narrator of the song. And to me, what's implied there is that she could have provided an alibi and didn't. That's true as well. Which is less relevant to Cyclops and more directly relevant, I think, to what's going on with Madeline and the X-Men right now. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. The darkness that's growing inside her, it's a cool illustration of it. Well, and the way she's managing information and playing parties against each other. But where the vision goes next is where it gets really interesting. Well, and the kid version of Maddie is not really all that she appears to be. In fact, we get a close-up of her eye with a very recognizable outline in flame, a phoenix raptor. And the Phoenix Raptor expands and basically nukes the Genosian landscape in her mind. What's left is a wasteland, and in that wasteland are two people. One of them is a version of Madeline very different from the child we saw before. And that's her in the Goblin Queen black underboob rags that we last saw when she made that deal with Sim in the last arc. This is her in her dark persona. The other is the Genesianer, and the Genesianer is dressed very differently than he was before. He is now wearing a costume we've really only seen once or twice in X-Men books so far, but which will eventually become very familiar. It's a bodysuit made out of what appeared to be sort of horizontal strips of something metallic with a large tattered cloak and a few significant gems. The Genesianer is dressed as Mr. Sinister. And man, okay, so we know what's coming. We know Sinister is central to Inferno, but if you were reading this comic at the time, this would have totally blindsided you. Like, wait. Why is the dude that led the Marauders, I know he had an interest in Madeline before, but why is he suddenly here in her head? That's assuming you even recognize him. He's shown up in maybe two issues so far. And the Genesianer is similarly very confused. Why am I dressed like this? What do you want? The one, because it pleases me. The other, as a warning to your masters. Be careful when you strike a match, even if only to light your way through the darkness. Because you never know when you'll ignite an inferno. So gloriously ominous. But what I love about this is that, like, the way you inflected, that's absolutely how it's portrayed. When she starts talking, she's not sure what the answer is. She's figuring it out as she goes. Yeah. 
there are three main avenues toward Madeline's role and her involvement in Inferno. One is a revenge on Cyclops. One is the demonic stuff. And one is the last to come into play, which is her gradually working out and learning her own origin story and finally confronting and coming to terms with Mr. Sinister. Yeah. And this is our first actual hint at that. Now, after all of this, back in the real world, Madeline Pryor is comforting Jenny Ransom. Well, she's been returned to her cell. Exactly. And Jenny's freaked out not only about having realized she's a mutant, she's going to be a slave, but she's also found out that what she would have had would have been healing powers. Healing is what she always wanted to do. That's why she left Genosha to become a physician, a doctor. A nurse. She's a nurse. Uh, A nurse, yeah. And apparently, Genosha's full up on healers. They don't need any more. So they're going to use the gene engineer's technology to turn her powers into basically like stuff she could use for excavation, metal crafting and stuff like that. Madeline calls back to one of the weirder, older miniseries that she was involved in and mentions that, you know, she also briefly had healing powers and she lost those powers and with them, her husband and her baby and she endured and so can Jenny because really there are enough demons to go around. (laughs) Well, I do like this though, seriously, because we've just seen all this dark, dark stuff with Maddie, but the fact is she's still a very strong, compassionate woman that hasn't gone away. Again, I'm going to go into this in more depth once we actually get to Inferno. But one of my favorite things about Madeline as the Goblin Queen is she really never stops being Madeline. Like, she is still herself in all the ways that I love, even as she becomes a supervillain. And that's a big part of it. So anyway, Wolverine and Carol, uh, you remember they still have Philip Moreau, they actually end up bringing him to the sort of camp, ghetto, barracks, whatever that the mutant slaves live in, and are like, hey, here's what your country is really doing. And he just can't believe it. He'd always been taught that mutants prefer the company of their own kind. They want to have their own life and their own place. Essentially, he's been blind to this because it was easier to be blind. Unfortunately, they are immediately caught, and they're immediately caught in a really clever way because the Genosian magistrates know that Wolverine and Rogue are invisible to sensors and cameras, and they've heard reports of Philip coming in with two guards, but they've been seeing him wandering around alone, and so they figure that must be where the two camera and invisible mutants are. Yeah, it's super clever. And so they're brought to the gene engineer, you know, his rogue son, well, renegade son, because Rogue is a person. And Philip, he's actually a really good kid. He confronts his father. He's like, I can't believe our country is based on this. I knew mutants were helping us, but I didn't know it was this way. I didn't know they were slaves. This is wrong. This is not okay. Uh, Gene Genere's just like, yeah, nah, nope. Well, I mean, he's compassionate to his son. He's like, son, this is necessary. And it's really just easier if you don't think about it. What this reminds me of is the Margaret Atwood short story, Those Who Walk Away from Omelas, about that kind of utopian city that is utopian because it puts all of his suffering on this one child. And everybody, when they come of age, is shown this. And if they are okay with this, they stay. If not, they walk away out of this perfect civilization. Well, I think they're kind of allegories for the same thing. I think they absolutely are. Are you willing to accept the cost of the luxuries you have, of the life you have? Own your goddamn privilege. Basically, yeah. So when it's clear that this confrontation isn't going to work, that the gene engineer is not just going to roll over for his son, Wolverine and Carol Danvers as Rogue break free and start fighting back. Just as the X-Men, who have successfully fought their way through the magistrates, also attack. Madeline, meanwhile, has gotten out of her skin suit and rescued the baby from the beginning. She's running away, carrying it, and she stops to look at the crush at the sort of mutant baby cloning center, which she notes looks vaguely familiar. And of course, the gene engineer confronts her with a gun, because when everything's going to hell, you have to have the big bad guy confront someone solo with a gun. And just as he's about to fire, just as he's about to kill her, his son tackles him, Havoc runs up and puts his arms around Madeline, they kiss, and Philip puts his gun to his father's head, demanding to know where Jenny Ransom has been taken. 
But unfortunately, Jenny has already been bondaged. Her skin suit, she's already started to change. They're already rewriting her mutant powers so that they're geared towards manual labor and excavation. Meanwhile, she's not the only one in trouble. Wolverine is absolutely incapable of getting in a fight without a healing factor to back him up. And so he is dying. He has been shot multiple times. Fortunately, Carol and Psylocke are able to force Wipeout to reverse his powers. He's okay, which leaves the question of what to do with the Genjinaire and the Magistrates. And Wolverine knows exactly what to do. Kill him. Tear this slimeball concentration camp country of theirs down to the bare rock and build something decent from the ashes. The person who objects, surprisingly, is Philip. You can't. Watch me. That isn't the way. We have to give the people a chance to set things right. Tell them what I've seen and learned. They'll be as revolted as I was. Oh, you're an optimistic kid. They'll do what you want without having to be coerced. You're a dreamer, boy. Power structures got everything to lose by yielding and nothing to gain. They'll squash you. All you'll be doing is postponing that final confrontation and probably making it a whole lot worse. Perhaps so, but I have to try. This is my country. I have to believe in it. You have to give us the chance. And man, so it's clear that Wolverine is, he's not wrong. You know, this probably will not work out. It won't work out. The status quo in Genosha will continue, in fact. This is carried out in continuity in the comic. But I have to give this kid props. I mean, after all he's seen, after all he's lost, I mean, he's had his entire view of the world just torn down over the last, like, 24 hours, and he cares this much, you know? I gotta respect him. And there's actually a scene earlier when Wolverine talks about how he's proud to stand by his side when he's confronting his father, and I completely see where Wolverine's coming from. Yeah, I mean, Wolverine, I think, recognizes that this kid is on the side of the angels. I think he's just also taking a much, much more pragmatic perspective to it. And unfortunately, both historically and, and in this particular story, Wolverine's perspective is the one that most often seems to be what it takes for that to play out. Genosha is not going to change until there's a violent revolution. Well, Wolverine knows the law of the sea. He's been around. He's seen stuff. Does that even apply? I know it's an island, but I'm pretty sure that being surrounded by ocean doesn't mean that maritime law applies even assuming that Wolverine is actually a maritime lawyer or remembers it because he's also got hella amnesia, I will point out. But the point is that Wolverine has been around for long enough to have developed this cynical but often correct perspective. But I love seeing that contrasted with the hope and optimism of those around him even when they are wrong. So that's the Genosha arc. I mean, the X-Men take Jenny Ransom and Philip Moreau back to their headquarters out of Genosha and rescue Madeline and everything's pretty much okay. If you notice that we didn't mention what had happened to the baby, there's a reason for that. By the time they get to Madeline, it's disappeared. Which brings us to, this is our first one in a couple episodes since we're now back in Uncanny. Inferno Watch. So what have we got this time? This time we actually have almost all of the pieces of Inferno in play. We have Madeline's heel turn as she continues to go over to the side of the demons. We have the budding romance between Madeline Pryor and Alex Summers. We have our first significant instance of baby theft. That's going to be a thing. We have Nastier's first appearance in Uncanny X-Men. He has, he has, again, at this point, been running around in X-Factor for a bit. We've got the first official proper connection of the Phoenix Force to Madeline Pryor within the Ark of Inferno. And we have the first hint at Madeline's connection to Mr. Sinister. And what you have is questions. Dr. Meow asks on Tumblr. Aw, Dr. Meow. Dr. Meow, that's be a good cat name. We all know horses are jerks. Thank you. But I'm curious, are there any good not-so-jerkish horses in X-Men continuity? Or is Brightwind just the best horse by default, despite the fact that he too can be kind of a jerk? I think we know we've done our podcast correctly when we're getting questions about whether horses are jerks. I feel really good about this. This isn't a question about whether horses are jerks. This is a question coming from the established point that horses are jerks. Well, fair point. 
So as it turns out, Brightwind aside, there aren't a ton of horses in the X-Men franchise. Thank God. I mean, there are the horsemen, like Apocalypse's horsemen, but they're usually only not jerks before or after they work for Apocalypse, like, you know, with Caliban and Angel. And the relevant horses are actually robot horses who aren't really horses, they're basically motorcycles, so that doesn't really count. Yeah, well. Now, the main example we could think of is actually only tangential to the X-Men, and that is the horse-faced God of Thunder alien, the one, the only, one of my very favorites, Beta Ray Bill. Beta Ray Bill isn't actually a horse, but he is sufficiently equine that he gets called horse-faced and the horse-looking guy a lot, so we're going to count him. Beta Ray Bill is great, he is not a jerk, and we are 100% in favor of him. He is noble and heroic, and I love him a lot. All right, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Hello, Jay and Miles, I have a question. How do you make re-readings more interesting and enjoyable? I'm someone that usually reads a series or a specific run, and I'm done. Rereading feels like a slog because I already know what to expect, but I want to change that. What should I be looking for that I might be missing in a more casual reading? Oh, you are singing my song, Anonymous. I was a lit major, and one of the things that you learn to do as a skill when you're doing serious lit study is basically to learn to enjoy taking text apart and revisiting it. I love rereading for a lot of reasons. One of them is familiarity. My favorite books are my security blankets. I like going back through them and knowing what to expect in the same way that I like knowing that my favorite teddy bear is still the same rough shape, size, and texture as it was when I was three. By a different token, one of the things that I really like about rereading is that it gives me a chance to kind of pick apart the mechanics of a story see how it works, find details I missed, and to go back to it with a different perspective. The way this material is going to look to you, for instance, is very, very different if you've read Inferno than if you haven't, if you know what's coming. So that's a huge part of it. At the same time, you know, the first time I read, I'll read for a story. The second time, I get to really sit down and look at the grittier components, look at the art, look at the storytelling mechanics, the balloon placements, the lettering, and really appreciate not just the story being told, but the pieces that make it tick dissect it and try to understand it and interact with it in different ways and at a different level. And one of the things I found to be really fun doing as many rereads as we've been doing for the podcast is getting a chance to look at comic story arcs that were coming out alongside the arcs around them, being able to draw connections not only to plot elements that were going on, like, you know, nastier showing up in two books at the same time, but also things like what are trends? I mean, what's up with Infectia and Gossamer having similar relationships to the teams in their book? You know, what does that say about the culture, about the society at the time the book was written? By the same token, going back to material, you know, when you're older, when you've read more other stuff, when you've read more criticism of it and you've been part of discussions around it, you bring an entirely different perspective to it. You know, it's a lot like why you'd want to visit the same place more than once in your life. Well, the first time I went to Ireland, I was too young to get into bars. <laughs> and you do not want to miss that in Ireland, it's true. No, Ireland has fantastic bars. It has amazing literary pub crawls, actually, to bring it full circle. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. But yeah, so we are a listener-supported podcast through Patreon, and some of those tiers of patronage bring you acknowledgement on the podcast from primarily fictional characters. This week, I believe I am turning it over to the master of foreshadowing, himself foreshadowed in this arc, Mr. Sinister. The pieces fall into place, and they don't even know the board they're on exists. I have subtly assembled my pawns, pawns who think they're kings and queens. Sim, Nastier, Cameron Hodge, Madeline Pryor... Alex Anthony and Jude. When the game begins, all shall dance in the motions I've prescribed. All shall go as planned by Mr. Sinister. 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, too. Episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and more. This podcast is totally listener-supported and ad-free. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and do what we're doing, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week brings the podcast to a couple really big milestones. We will be hitting our 100th episode, and to celebrate that, we're going to be talking to a very, very special guest. Welcome to Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, Chris Claremont. Hope you survive the experience. Hey!